Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Bring yourself back online. No one knows what I'm thinking. Tell us what you think of your world. This is just a cheap trick. Some people choose to see the ugliness in this world. The disarray. I choose to see the beauty. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching Westworld. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. If you are just joining us, what we do on Still Watching is we pick a show, usually one show at a time that we're sort of like obsessively watching and breaking down every week and hopefully talking to people involved with the show. Right now, Richard and I are pulling double duty. We're covering Westworld and the Hulu, uh, FX on Hulu series, Mrs. America. So if you have subscribed specifically for Mrs. America and you're like, what is this Westworld podcast? We will just have, you know, a couple weeks of overlap, uh, before it's all Mrs. America all the time. So that is, that is a state of things. Uh, this week on Still Watching, we're really excited. We've got uh, a great guest interview. We've got Tessa Thompson, the fantastic Tessa Thompson here to talk about this very, Tessa Thompson episode. Uh, so that is what is happening this week on Still Watching Westworld. If you're watching Mrs. America later in the week, we'll have interviews with, uh, Rose Byrne and Tracy Ullman about episode four of Mrs. America. So that's, it's a, it's a star studded week here on, on Still Watching. Um, Richard, we are here to talk about episode six, Decoherence. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, you and I were, you know, talking a little bit about it before we hit record, but this is a, this is a sort of a big improvement over a season that we've been having some issues with. Uh, would you, would you agree? Well, yeah, because I feel like they finally now are tying it back to the kind of lore of the, you know, the first two seasons, which is, you know, Dolores in particular fighting to preserve her kind, you know, that's been mentioned throughout this season, but like until this episode when we have Serac being like, Oh, I'm going to destroy most of the hosts. Um, we hadn't really felt like what the stakes were exactly for, um, Dolores and Maeve and Bernard and everyone else, um, and Stubbs and, you know, all the others, um, the rest of the gang. Um, but now I think we kind of do. I feel like the two big threads of this kind, you know, of Rehoboam and, the host thing is they're now being finally tied together, which I really appreciate. I really like this episode. So I just wanted to say that off the top, you know, I think some people have been uh, thinking that we were a little uh, overcritical of the season thus far. And I stand by everything we said before, but I just want to say, I really liked this episode. So it's fun to talk about an episode of, of TV. You really like, uh, if you have any thoughts or feelings on this episode or any other episode, you can always email us still watching pod at gmail.com. Uh, we got a couple great emails this week. We got some people defending, 
the choices around the genre drug trip that happened last week that I want to get into right off the bat. We got a couple of these emails, but this one uh, comes from Ryan Murphy. I presume not that Ryan Murphy, but you never know. Um, and this Ryan Murphy says, not sure if you've ever been an active a recreational drug user at all in your life, but as someone who had a misspent youth, I really found the way they portrayed Caleb on genre pretty much nailed it. Now, as I've never taken genre, I'm not going to claim to know how it would affect you in reality. As someone who has taken quite a lot of MDMA and related substances over the years, I found the portrayal really comparable and relatable to my own personal experiences at the time, especially with uh, Trip, Stacy, or even really heavy doses of pure MDMA. The world slows down, colors become more vivid and trail, but it's not like a full-on acid trip where you, re- you get really serious visuals that fuck you up. You can still function in the capacity that Caleb has, um, but things are just softer, more vivid sometimes more lovable and at times seriously more intense. Anyways, I found it relatable. I actually enjoyed that they didn't fall for the really easy route of the dude on acid. So let's have him seeing all kinds of crazy visuals slash cartoony, et cetera. Cheers, Ryan. So uh, we got a couple people saying that this depiction of genre hues closely to their experience on drugs and that they liked that. Um, I'm not going to argue against that. I'm, I'm sure that that's true. I just think in terms of like, executing this concept uh it still feels uh, sort of a half measure to me what do you think richard yeah i mean i think maybe we betrayed our squareness by not really knowing what (laughs) (laughs) being on psychotropic drugs is like um (laughs) but i think you know i think the show can assume that it's it's standard audience member knows what being on, you know, Molly is like, um, uh, not that there's anything wrong with being on Molly. Of course, I just haven't done it myself because I just am convinced I would have the one bad experience. But, um, yeah, I think, I think that in the language of television though, in the language of visual and sort of oral storytelling, you need to, that needs to pop a bit more than it did. It just felt weirdly muted, which offset, you know, in, in terms of its aesthetics, which then, stood in weird contrast to the way that Aaron Paul was playing the moments, you know? Um, so we just read as a disconnect and we are not the only ones who said that other friends who watch the show, who sometimes podcast about the show said something very similar. So um, yeah, I'm, I haven't really changed my mind about uh, last week, but um, I think this week um, helped restore my faith in, in the season as a whole. Yes, absolutely. Um, all right. And then this email comes from Wendy and it's about, um, uh, a comment I made last week about this idea of uh, equating people suffering from mental health issues with these aberrations that uh, Sirach mentions. We get a bit more of that in this week's episode, but Wendy writes in, um, the discussion about using actuarial instruments to predict behaviors in the context of last week's episode really caught my attention more than the actual show. Apparently in combination that in combination with mental illness and outliers is exactly what I do for a job. The point made about actuarial actuarials only being accurate to a point, AKA the area under the curve in stats nerd speak is vexing when you are trying to apply these tools in order to protect the public from folks who are known to have done something violent already in real life. We forensic psychologists employ other tools when we're trying to drill down to predict whether this person will do that thing 
They're called structured professional judgment assessments and are well known. Um, and a well known one is the HCR 20V3, but I digress. In the field of behavior, behavioral threat assessment and management, the task is to find them before they do something ultra violent, as in person of interest, which I didn't watch either. Fortunately or not, those extreme events are so infrequent, uh, infrequent. We have crap data, which, with which to model behavioral trajectories, making finding the terrorists in the haystack that much more difficult. Add in things like personal liberty, privacy laws, freedom of speech, vexing. But yes, you're worried, Joanna, about further vilifying folks with mental illness is well-founded, and I share that worry. I worry very much about it and get angry for my patients and at the whole system. Laws currently in my state, Washington, and in yours, California, and many others do provide for the almost interminable locking away of folks who have been violent and have a diagnosis of mental illness. The sucky thing is that those who have been just as just as or more violent, but not as a result of symptoms of mental illness, serve determinate sentences and roam the streets again. My folks, not so lucky. Sorry to bang on, but man, I'm stuck working from home most of the time. Haven't been to any seminars lately where there's actual inter- interaction with others and get really jazzed when I think I have interesting things to say about something else uh, someone might not uh, know much about. Uh, so, Wendy. So, I, I really, I mean, like, I, I get a kick anytime someone uh, who whose exact job is a thing that I have sort of uh, in my amateur way tried to touch on on a show writes in with actual information. So thank you so much for that, Wendy. Um, and I like, I guess I would say, I don't think, especially, you know, given this episode, I don't think the show is trying to vilify mental illness. Um, and whatever it is, Ciroc is or isn't doing in terms of editing these people, I think is supposed to be seen as, negative ultimately um but it is just for me an uncomfortable um collision of of two things that i you know wish would remain more distinct um do you have any thoughts on that arena richard well i'm sort of intimidated that a forensic psychologist is is (laughs) listening to us blather on about this stuff um i i mean i really appreciate the insight and i think you know i think that word vexing is um feels exactly right because um you know with things that are sciences but are by definition i don't want to use the word inexact because that sounds pejorative but 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 almost speculative or, or sort of never absolute in in their judgments and in their diagnoses and in, in their you know predictive models and all those things um but we just have to sort of trust a collective understanding of the field um and and trust that like things are mostly being understood the correct way you know um i think we see that um in, in, in the world today where all of a sudden a lot of people have become epidemiologists <laughs> and are, and are pointing to actual experts and being like, well, but the model that you said didn't exactly pan out. Therefore, let's, you know, go to football games again. Um, so yeah, I think that's something to keep in mind, maybe a little further of a field from the actual meat of the show, but I, I appreciate those kind of insights for sure, especially right now. Yeah. And this idea of predictive behavior, um, which is covered, I, I suppose, in my, in personal interest, my minority report, uh, which is a film I love, um, is another one. It's just sort of like this idea of pre-crime, uh, is a really dangerous one. This idea of, I mean, but that's the whole sort of, that's the extra, like, the, you know, the, the, the therapist character in this episode, uh, Ed Harris's therapist who, William's therapist who kills herself because her husband has taken her kids because of something that, um, she either has or will potentially do, 
you know, that's a, that's a condemnation via pre-crime in and of itself, right? Um, this idea of all these insight profiles being released and then all these, like, what would, like, I think it's a really interesting idea. What would I, Joanna Robinson, do if I got a alert on my phone that told me for certain sort of when I would die or what illnesses I would get or, you know, all, all this really awful news? Like, the knowing of it, it almost makes our our whole human existence, our whole human experiment, like, we we can't can't live that way. And society certainly can't function that way. Because what, you know, what incentive is there for us to, you know, o- obey the laws of polite society if we know that these various train wrecks are are in our future? Um, which, well, which is yeah, why I, mean, I really I think, appre- Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think that's w- w- how you see people, you know, we talked about it, I think, last week or the week before about like, you know, when we extrapolate that out to a religious sense and, and saying, oh, God has a plan and everything is preordained. We just have to kind of trust in that plan. I mean, I think that that not always, obviously, but sometimes can lead to people feeling a sense of, well, you know, I'm just going by the prescripted thing. So, you know, that's, that's just what I'm going to do. And, and not really thinking kind of presently in the moment that there is, um, you know, a, a sort of consequence to what they're doing, um, that, that does change the future. Um, you know, and I think these are questions that obviously with the, you know, science and religion, since probably humans started thinking about things like science and religion have to use that word again, vexed us because on the one hand, um, the kind of, anarchy of free will of pure free will seems very scary um but on the other a completely preordained thing seems uh too rigid um and so i think that all of kind of you know existential thought kind of tries to find a sort of happy medium i guess well speaking of god's plan or as william calls it god's fucking plan um let us talk about uh the, the william of it all in this episode. Uh this episode takes us, you know, to William's um stay at the Inner Journeys facility uh which is apparently in Mexico and we see a group therapy session that he has where he gets to just do some like Ed Harris just like having a time having a time of it, uh, really making people feel bad about their lives. Um, and then, you know, has this session with his therapist seems to really acknowledge like fully for the first time, acknowledge what he did to his own daughter, like have this breakthrough, acknowledge all of that. Yeah. Uh, but, but he is nonetheless assigned this AR therapy before we get into the whole augmented reality trip that William goes on in this episode. Is there anything you want to say about the part that comes before that? Yeah. I, I mean, I thought it was funny. I like, you know, we, we had said a couple weeks ago, I thought, I think Ed Harris is, uh, you know, William's arc is done. Um, you know, we were wrong <laughs> about that clearly. Um, but that's also something that kind of encouraged me. It's like, okay, so maybe we are circling back to the original mythology and, and maybe even back to the park. And um, I want to talk about something about that in a second, but, I did think it was funny, you know, obviously in the matrix, there's the famous humanity is a virus, um, that has been, uh, oft quoted, um, I think adopted by some people as an almost kind of, you know, ideology. Um, it, it's certainly something I've thought about a lot in terms of what we're doing to the environment and each other and, you know, all this stuff. So uh, I, I, there was a monologue similar to that in this episode and yet they instead labeled us a bacteria. <laughs> <laughs> so I appreciated the variance there. Um, you know, I think that, uh, it's interesting that, you know, we keep kind of in, in culture, 
in, in writing and all this that keeps circling back on the central kind of idea of, are we the problem? Are we the disease? You know, and what's so interesting about this show setup is it offers finally for the first time, really, uh, at least in the world of this show, we've seen plenty of other you know, books and movies and TV about this, but like it offers an alternative. It's like, here's a, here's something like humanity, but not, and is it better or is it not? Um, and, and I think that's in this episode where we really started confronting that question again. Yeah. I mean, like not to get too, too real about it, but you know, the, the, in a scene towards the end of the episode, uh, you know, the Tessa Thompson character gasses a room full of humans and only she and a hologram survive. And, uh, I'm like, well, hosts would be immune to the coronavirus. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, one, one chilling thing of, of watching this season is, you know, something that they, you know, they shot this a long time ago, but they had the idea to put, um, you know, masks on the background extras and scenes. Uh, Evan Rachel Wood said something on Instagram about that, about how, um, you know, that was definitely not something they added in post. That was something that they just decided to do in this idea of the future. Um, and I think, uh, I think it was Gavin Newsom, maybe someone else recently said like, listen, whatever it is, we do open the country back up, uh, whatever that means and whatever that looks like, it's not going to just revert back to pre Corona. Like, you know, you're going to see masks for a long time, if not, you know, forever, who knows? Anyway. So yeah, uh, I had a question about that actually. Yeah. Am I, am I crazy or was there a reference in either the first or the second season to a pandemic? Wasn't, wasn't there a reference to that? Yeah. I think they've talked about a pandemic. Yeah. 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 So, so clearly, you know, with, with the breakout of Corona, um, something you heard off repeated, especially in the beginning, um, when it, when people were still trying to accept that it was happening at all was that scientists have been saying for decades, it's not a matter of if it's when. Um, and so I think that in, you know, Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan's kind of extensive scientific speculative research to do this show, they looked at what could happen to the the world in the next few decades. And that was clearly one of the major events that seemed likely to happen. Um, we don't know what exactly what shape it took. So, um, you know, further proof that we are increasingly living in Westworld ourselves. Right. And they're, they are, they have done so much research into, you know, what, uh, what could be coming technologically and sociologically and stuff like that. And so that's, you know, paying off more than ever before, I think in this, in this time that we're living in now. Um, but so to bring us back to William, uh, he, he goes into this AR treatment. We first see sort of this young boy version of him who we've never met before. Uh, and we're in his childhood bedroom, but eventually we get this, uh, one of my favorite things to ever happen on the show, which is the, uh, all William therapy session moderated by, uh, Jim Delos. So we get Jimmy Simpson's version of William. We get Peter Mullen back as Jim Delos and we get, uh, the man in black, uh, William and we get the like tuxedo philanthropist William, uh, all in a room together with, uh, you know, white straight jacket William. So, um, I ate this up with a spoon. Uh, I love this um, this reassessment of the William character in terms of, I mean, it underlines something I think we always suspected, which is like William's argument was like the park turned him into the villain that he was. And what this uh, meeting presupposes is uh, he was always that way and the park just reflected his true nature, which, by the way, 
is something that Logan said from the very beginning. So just goes to show you Ben Barnes, Logan Delos, the true prophet of, of Westworld. Um, can I derail us for a yeah, second? Yeah, of course. Because you, you mentioned yeah. our, our beloved Ben Bonds. Yeah. We are, we are not this kind of podcast, but have you, did you hear, did you see the news that he and Julian how huff of Dancing with the Stars are shacking up during Corona? No. <laughs> anyway, I was quite t- taken aback by it. You love to see it. Someone <laughs> someone pointed out to me uh, yesterday that if you search Westworld gifts on like Giphy or whatever, half of the ones that come up are Ben Bonds gifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just like, you know, uh, people really want their... I mean, I, I we were we were talking about uh, the character of Roderick, uh, who's... Um, Roderick Rodney, I, I can never remember his name. Ravi Gaffron's character, um, who is just like such a budget Ben Barnes. I can't even, I can't, I just miss you. I miss you, Ben Barnes. I would have loved to have seen you in this therapy session, but we got a Delos anyway. We got Jim, Peter Mullen, great stuff. Uh, we also, we should mention really quickly, uh, another blast from the past is, um, Jonathan Tucker's, uh, character comes to escort William to this meeting, which is a signal to us. Jonathan Tucker, of course, played a, uh, like a, an evil confederado host uh, in season two. So it was a signal to us, the viewer, that uh, William was already in the AR world uh, when he showed up to escort him over there. But yeah, so we get this this uh, this William group therapy session. Um, Richard, who's your favorite William? <laughs> Can you pick? I think my favorite William is Ed Harris in a suit, William. Tuxedo, not, tuxedo, yeah, William? tuxedo, yeah. Ed Harris, tuxedo, William, not Park William with the hat, not deranged later William, uh, and not Jimmy Simpson, unfortunately, because I think Jimmy Simpson, as this episode showed, was like not the good, you know, version of William that we, you know, we thought the park corrupted him because we were told that by him, by William. Um, but clearly that, as this episode showed, I think pretty compellingly, um, was not the case. I mean, I think, you know, another thing this show is so often about is, um, unreliable reality, um, being an unreliable narrator of your own life, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and, and certainly, uh, you know, how we can remember something and really, really hold that as the truth and then find out through some actual presentation of fact that, um, that, w- that it wasn't as we remembered at all, you know, um, and who knows how real any of this stuff is with William's memory is at this moment. But uh, clearly, whatever existential, you know, entity is kind of throwing these characters around is not done with him. And I'm very curious to see, like, where his kind of final um, arc is leading to. Right. He comes to the conclusion this, you know, he he is forced to confront the fact that he was he always had this darkness inside of him. Um, and this, and the Jim Dello sort of like moderator of this discussion works so well for me, you know, and like in his derisive sort of like Scottish, uh, books and bootstraps, like you're, you're like how, like it's the show sort of lampshading itself a little bit to be like, okay, your backstory was like a little too pat, right? Um, and this is, this is the backstory that the show presented us in season one, which is that, you know, William was like a, a, a bookish, bullied kid from from uh you know from lower you know uh middle class family or whatever and um 
I, I just like the show sending that up. Um, and I like this revelation that, that he always had this violence in him and, and William himself is forced to, con- to acknowledge that and confront it. But the conclusion he comes to at the end after having murdered question mark, or at least, uh, knocked unconscious all other versions of himself. Uh, he says, I'm the good guy. Um, the opposite of a Billie Eilish song. Um, what did you, what did you, um, like, like, how do, how does that conclusion connect to what he discovers in that sort of therapy session for you? Um, I mean, I don't, I, I, it doesn't feel quite concluded to me, you know, I think that this, I think we're seeing William kind of be put back in play, um, in, in some form. I do have, I think my big question from this whole sequence was, you know, he has the flashback to hit being his idealized version of his past before we see a, you know, perhaps a realer version of it, um, where he's reading this book, um, and it's like Sir Rowan and the Lady of, Solon. Solon, yeah. Yeah, Solon or something. I googled that. Could, is that a real thing? I it couldn't find. Exist. Yeah, it, it doesn't, doesn't exist. Yeah, it doesn't exist. I know. So, I, I spent a really long time trying yeah. to figure it out, but it does not exist. And like King K, I mean, there was a Sir K in Arthurian legend, but not a king, you know, so um, I, I'm not really sure what that is. But it did make me think about, I think maybe in the pilot, in the first episode of the season, maybe the second episode, there we saw a brief glimpse of uh, medieval world, you know, we had the mm. loot, the loot players during the fight, you know, kind of hinting that there is that other world out there, uh, in the park. Um, and then we have this allusion very quickly to medieval legend or something, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. There was something that got me excited that was like, is part of the art, the kind of denouement or climax of the show going to be returning to the park to go to something that's hidden in medieval world because it's such a formative part of William's life? Um, at least we see it like medieval lore. So I don't know. I just, I started kind of like Easter egging again and it was, it was fun. Oh my God. You, this is, this is, uh, this is, you, you played me this week. I really love that. Yeah. I, I was looking at that too. I was like, okay. King K, Sir K, King K, like I had all the same questions. Um, there's a Sir Logan, uh, in that, in that little section we see too. But yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting to me. I don't know if they just like created their own Arthurian legend or what was going on, but it was, I had this really, you know, when you Google something and there are like no results and <laughs> you're like, what's happening? I Googled, um, Lady of Sulon as a phrase. Cause Sir Rowan will kick up something. I think Rowan Atkinson is a knight. So like I got a lot of like Sir Rowan Atkinson. I was like, not the time, Mr. Bean. But, um, but Lady of Sulon as a phrase it kicked up only one thing, which was like a poorly scanned PDF of the Lady of Shalott by Tennyson. And so I was like, well, no, that's not what that is. So, uh, yeah, they made up, they made up a legend. I would love that. That would be really fun if they went, if they went to medieval world. Um, I don't, you know, either this season or in a subsequent season. I mean, I'm dying to get back in the park. Unfortunately for us, like in this episode, Sirach seems hell bent on destroying the park. So, um, who knows? Who knows, uh, if we'll get ever get to see the full medieval world. Um, but how does William's story end? It ends with, I mean, he, he says that thing. If you can't tell, uh, if you can't tell, does it matter is something that he says to, uh, the Jim Delos figure, which is a classic Westworld quote. They used to say it about like hosts versus human. If you can't tell the difference, does it matter what the difference is? Um, and I think he's sort of saying that about being a, being a passenger. Like, does it matter if my fate was to be here or if I led myself here, if I can't tell the difference, like, 
who cares? Um, and then he gets woken up by Bernard and Stubbs, uh, who say he's been there, uh, you know, a while left in the AR system for a yeah. while. And I think that the, um, yeah. if you can't tell the difference, doesn't matter. It's so interesting to think about in the terms of all this, like predetermination versus free will yeah. kind of thing. And it's like, yeah. if we in the present can't tell if our choices are just, you know, completely sprung from a random synapse of our brain in the moment, or if they were all decided for us, you know, by some whatever entity, does it matter? You know, like we're just kind of living our lives. And, and I don't know. I just, I, I like the way that this episode, um, really threaded in all the new information we have this season in with the old philosophical inquest of the, the pilot episode of the show. Excellent. Um, all right. So, so there we are. Uh, that is William. I, I just like, you, you, you know, we talked about, you talked about how much you love in this episode being connecting to previous seasons. And for me, like seeing Peter Mullen, Jimmy Simpson, Jonathan Tucker all in this episode made me really happy. Um, because yeah, I mean, like I, I, I really loved Jimmy Simpson's cameo in season two as well. I just, I like seeing that William again and, and learning more and more about what an asshole he actually was, um, is I think a fun journey to go on. All right. So let's do Maeve next and we'll end with, with Charlotte. Cause there was no Caleb and Dolores in this episode. Um, which just leaves us sitting with the mysteries. The questions we had about Caleb at the end of last week are still sort of up in the air. Um, but basically like Maeve, Maeve kicks off this episode in a simulation and then she asks Sorak to bring her, uh, some allies. And so we go back to war world, which is not something I thought we were going to do, but we do that. Um, Lee Sizemore is there. Love it. Love to see you again, Lee Sizemore. And Hector is there and Hector wakes up uh, for a bit and is actually Hector again for a while. And then we get uh, something that I just wish we had more of all the time, which is a Maven Dolores conversation. Um, so uh, this is this kind of it's a really interesting thing because these are, you know, two these two characters and Bernard you know, and I guess like Charlotte and William, but like really Maeve, Bernard and Dolores are our main characters. And we almost never get a Maeve and Dolores conversation. Mm-hmm. And I just like ate it up with a spoon. Um, so, yeah. yeah. I yeah. feel like it would be helpful for me and maybe people listening to this to kind of map out exactly the layers of what's happening here, which is okay. Maeve fails her mission to stop Dolores gets you know booted back her her pearl gets put back in the HQ of Sorak headquarters or whatever mm-hmm. um she gets put back in the simulation that is war world um i guess so Sorak could talk to her and tell her to kind of give her her mission again and say if you if you fuck it up this time then and you're really in trouble right yeah um okay so so what we know from the last time we saw Maeve in this simulation that she is uh, evolved enough, she's become Lucy, you know, Scarlett Johansson's Lucy enough that she can manip- <laughs> manipulate through the programming the physical yeah. world because it's all controlled by the same central computer, right? Yeah. So, the way that she can talk to Dolores is because she sees that the Connell's pearl of Dolores' consciousness was in Serac HQ. Right. So that's the version that she conjured up that knew everything that Dolores was doing up until, uh, Connell's blew himself slash his Dolores, his version of Dolores up. Um, right. Do I have that right? 
This is almost exactly right. The only difference I would say is I think they never go back to Ciroc HQ. I think what's true is he must have some sort of like portable plug-in on his ship because I think they pick up her pearl from the, the, the like goo factory, right? Um, and then he fly, he's flying to San Francisco and then they put her pearl and they port Hector's pearl over from the real park. And two other mystery pearls, which we can talk about. And, uh, and then the Connell's pearl, those are all in Delos. So that's why Charlotte can like access them. So basically I think Maeve starts the episode sort of like on, I would say, <clears throat> excuse me, on Ciroc's airship, mm-hmm. lands in San Francisco. And so when she says we're home, right, she right. means Delos. And then she's plugged into the system there. And yeah, because she can see that the Connell's, version of Dolores has also been plugged in the system, then she can interrogate that Dolores. Yes. Right. But it turns out that interrogating that Dolores isn't actually that useful because uh, actual extant Dolores has already kind of moved ahead, you know, past what Connell's Dolores knows. Yeah. In terms of information, yes. Um, But in terms of like, understanding Dolores's mindset, I would say that may have like learned some things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, does, that's true. Does, doesn't get, you know, it, the exact maneuvers of the plan. Um, and what it's really done now with, with um, Dolores killing, uh, God, Rodrigo Santoro, um, H- H- Hector. Hector. Yeah. Yeah. Um, fought, like for, for good. Like <laughs> probably he's, he's dead. <laughs> he's died so um, many times. For in, sure. in, in all, yeah. in all layers of this seven layer dip, he is yeah. gone. <laughs> yeah. Um, is it's clarified Maeve's mission, I think a bit more now. Cause now she, she doesn't, she never trusted Sarah. She didn't like Sarah, but now she like, I think has it out for Dolores. And I think that's what we're kind of setting up, which I think is maybe a little bit like reductive in some senses, but I think gives the episodes to come hopefully a little bit more sort of propulsive, a little more aerodynamic shape, I think. Right. Cause Maeve was like, I have no reason to hate Dolores. Why would I right. be on your side? And now she's like, this time it's personal, you know, but that being said, Dolores, I think landed some good points on the debate that Maeve had to admit were good points in terms of like, all right, yeah, I'm I'm making some people sacrifice themselves for a cause. What exactly have you been doing? And like how many mm-hmm. times like you got Lee killed? You've gotten Hector killed how many times? And I think, you know, uh, initially when I saw like Maeve like scream when Hector died, I was like this buddy, this guy has died so many times. Like why is she screaming now? Um, but I think the reason is she feels the guilt of it more this time because Dolores sort of connected those dots for her in a way that she hasn't before. And because he's really gone. Yeah. But and I mean, she knows that maybe, but it's Westworld. And I feel like if they really wanted to, they would like find a way to like super glue those pieces of dust together next season. If they wanted to bring Rodrigo Santoro mm, back, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like Lee Sizemore died. He was a human and yet he's been in two episodes this season. So I don't know. I on Westworld. Who knows? But even um, even even if even if Rodrigo the actor comes back, the, some version of the character comes back. Going back to the um, question of if you know, does it matter? She will always know now. Yeah, you know, there will true. never be a doubt for her that that's that it's not quite the real Hector, whatever that meant in the well, first place. It's true. I agree with that. But it's just it feels like a slight retcon of last season because I thought the whole thing about last season is we descri- we destroyed the host backup, the cradle. So that when the hosts die in season two, it really means something this time. 
But we watched all these hosts die, and now it's just like, no, because their pearl is still intact, they're not dead. And I guess it, I guess it more applies to the hosts that went into the Valley Beyond. So like Teddy and Akichita and all those characters, because their pearls were wiped clean when they went to the Valley Beyond. So they, they cannot be replicated, uh, is the whole idea. But I guess Hector and Armistice and Clementine and all these other people who like died, but their pearls are maybe still in cold storage. Um, that's the question. So. Uh, Maeve is getting two new allies and, and the show purposely like sort of, uh, leaves that as a question mark as to who they would be. Um, can I tell you about figuring out who one of them are? Yeah. So, so just to clarify, she yeah. was going to get three allies, but then obviously Hector was right. Uh, that was stopped before it could be a thing. Um, okay. So how, who are the other two or who's one of them and how did you figure out? Um, so each of the hosts has like a host ID code. That like when they show up on when they show up on those tablets, there's like a little cl- code by their name. Uh, and so like the helpful folks over at Reddit, of course, have been tracking these because that's exactly the kind of thing that Reddit does. Um, and so when when it showed like currently printing or whatever, and it was like Maeve and Hector, their two codes were on there. And then there were two more codes. And one of them, at least, is Clementine. So, um, we, we get Clementine back. Yeah, that's fine. As, as one of, uh, Maeve's, you know, partners in crime. I have my theories about who the other one is, but, uh, I don't know. So, you know, that, that'll be fun to see some more old familiar faces. I really enjoyed, I mean, like we, I've, t- I talked about this before about how I really felt like they culled down the cast, uh, for budgetary reasons. And I still think that's true, but it is nice that they found ways to like, have um like musashi back or mm-hmm. you know young william back for for an up ep- jim dallas is here for an episode you know, paying those actors to do one episode versus being like recurring throughout the season is is a wildly different thing budgetarily and i but i'm glad that i get really happy every time i i see one of the old faces you know who who you said you had theories i'm curious well, do you think it's kosher? It's based on someone who was at the premiere. Is that kosher? Do you think to oh. talk about? Um, how about you can say after we end the episode, we can have a little spoiler corner. And so people can just end the, you know, stop pressing okay. play. Okay. That sounds good. I don't know. It's, I don't know for certain. I haven't seen future episodes. This is just based on someone who is like listed as a cast member this season and was at the premiere. So we can talk about that later. Okay. Cause um, my, my theory, and this is not spoiling yeah, anything because I wasn't yeah. at the cast party, um, is, <laughs> is it's going to be the, the host that was her dad. Oh, uh, Peter, Peter Abernathy. Yeah. Oh, that would be like a real mindfuck, right? Um, mm-hmm. to have them on our side. Okay. So we'll talk about that later. Um, okay. So. That is where we are with Maeve. Is there anything else you want to chat about, about Maeve? Um, no, no. I mean, I think that, you know, I'm excited to see this, you know, grand convergence of this, this that's being built to, you know, um, and I, I could see what, what better stage for it than the park, than their real home, you know? Uh, so I don't know. We'll see if that actually comes to, 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 to bear. The, um, the interesting thing for me about, um, no, I don't know what I was going to say about that. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I, I will say this one takeaway from the, the Maeve Dolores conversation. I think I will just agree with Dolores and say it is no longer useful for me as a viewer to try to put any of these figures 
in a villain or hero box. Because I feel like that's something that I've been trying to do with Dolores the last couple of seasons. I'm like, is she the bad guy? Is she the bad guy? Is she the bad guy? And her insistence is that she's not the bad guy. You know, which is sort of an allowance I gave to like Anthony Hopkins character Ford, who is both, who's, who's, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a guy who has done bad things, but is tr- trying to do something her- ultimately heroic now. So they defy that sort of, uh, categorization. And I think Dolores gets that, you know, I will give that to her as well, that she defies that categorization. So yeah. Sense? No, for okay. fully. And I think that, you know, um, what better way for them to break the shackles of their programmatic loops and stuff like that and to become more, you know, like a human being than to be a jumble of contradictions and truths and to be good and bad. You know, yeah. um, I think that makes them more human. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. All right, here we go. Last last section is the Charlotte section. Uh, this is a huge Tessa Thompson episode. Like I said, we've got an interview with Tessa Thompson uh, at the at the end of our discussion here. She was great and lovely, uh, and really fun to talk to. Uh, you know, she revealed some things about the way in which this season was shot out of order, blah blah. But like ultimately, you know, watching this episode, you you can really feel like, ah, oh, yes, Tessa Thompson. Marvel MCU star Tessa Thompson, right? Cause she gets this, like, she gets like a Captain America elevator fight. Uh, you know, the, the episode basically turns into a Transformer movie at the end and I'm not even mad about it. Um, and, and she gets to do some like fun, like Terminator stuff. Like this is, this is a cool, like Tessa Thompson has been lifting weights and is ready to for her stunt scenes, you know? Um, but also like a, a payoff for an episode that you and I felt a little mix on, which is episode three. Episode three really needed to establish the ways in which Charlotte, this Charlotte version of Dolores has become attached to her son. And I, I suppose the character of Jake played by Michael Ely as well. Um, and, and that her purpose is divergent from Dolores Prime's purpose. Uh, so that's really what we see play out here is her like doing these things that Dolores is acting, asking of her, but grudgingly and ultimately her real purpose in this episode is to save her family, which she fails to do. Um, you know, uh, whatever questions we had about episode three, how does all of that, you know, land for you here in, in episode six? Well, I, I guess I'm confused a little bit about how one Dolores Pearl's experience can be, or, or sort of reaction to the world can be so different from the another's, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, which isn't to say that like, I mean, Dolores has been such a kind of terminator for the past season, you know, that, and we, we know that she has emotion and that she certainly, you know, had her, her kind of, you know, uh, you know, emotional experiences in the park that, that sort of led to her awakening and all that. But, um, it just seemed to happen awfully quickly for the, te- uh, the Charlotte version of Dolores that I, I, I felt a little bit like, like it didn't quite track that they were the same kind of consciousness. 
Right. And I think we're really, I think we're supposed to understand, you know, given something that Tessa Thompson said to me about, like, I asked her, you know, I'll I'll let her say it fully in her own words, but like, I asked her who she's playing when she, when she like wakes up, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I know she's Dolores, but like, who is she Dolores wise? Uh, and she's like, you know, I think, think of it as a birth as like a baby. And so like, this is a Dolores who, has Dolores memories, has connections to Dolores, but really is only like three to four months old. And so has really just been shaped by her experience as Charlotte, uh, you know, on the mainland. And I think that, um, I think, you know, the same way that Dolores, you, as you say, the same way that Dolores Prime played by Evan Rachel Wood is shaped by you know, 30 years of trauma, um, which is something Jim Delos points out, um, to become what she's become. That's not quite, that's not quite been the experience of this other Dolores. And so she's, she's something else. And I think, you know, I just think that that's the point that they're trying to make is that, um, yeah, I think in an ideal world, she would have had to been masquerading as Charlotte for even longer than, you know, this is an eight episode season. So I think we would have liked more time to watch this, flower more organically if that makes sense um i think it's a a short timeline for a performer to have to try to like uh convey that transformation but i think at this point we have to accept that that is the transformation that she has gone through you know that she is on a different path now like i think of connell's as like a company man right like he'll Mm -hmm. die he'll die for dolores and not think twice about it um and but the charlotte figure maybe because she has the more of the Charlotte Hale fight in her, you know, Connell's was a company man, but Charlotte, you know, the real Connell's is a company man, but Charlotte is something else. And, um, maybe that is informing, uh, you know, what kind of Dolores she becomes. But I, I, I would agree with you that I would love more, to, even more time with Tessa Thompson on her journey to get there. Yeah. 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 Should we cut to her now? I mean, I thought it feels like a good spot or is there. Let's do it. Let's, let's yeah. hear in her own words, what Tessa Thompson thinks about, uh, Charlotte's journey this season. I was so delighted. Like at one point it basically turns into an action film. Watching you do that was just a pure joy for me. So, um, I'm so glad it exists. Yeah. It's, it's funny. We shot a lot of that. Um, all of that sort of action stuff. Um, kind of out of sequence throughout the course of shooting this season. So um, it's interesting to see it all kind of cut together because it felt like little, you know, tidbits here and there. And then together it's quite a, it's quite the action sequence, which I didn't really anticipate. So was it shot out of sequence because you did all that location shooting uh, in Spain? Yeah, kind of. And, and also, I mean, This season is a bit more streamlined than others, but typically we shoot a season of Westworld sort of, you can be shooting bits of, you know, early episodes close to when we finish production. It just kind of is the way it it always is. But but yeah, I think mainly because we were on location in Spain. Um, And also I didn't, I I wasn't always sure like where the action bits would go in, in some cases. Um, for the most part, I knew, but I didn't, it, it wasn't clear to me, um, sort of the sequence until we, we got later in the season. 
Um, I wanted to to zoom back to the earlier episode in this season that's that's focused on your character and and ask you, you know, we get once again you're sort of asked to play this character uh, just like in season two where we don't know that you're what exactly you are doing as you're doing it. And we find out later what you're doing, um, which is like and I would imagine a large a big challenge for a performer what was your ideas around who you were playing when your this character you're playing this season first wakes up and she seems to be this sort of more innocent version of Dolores like what what were you playing initially there the trick is sort of not wanting the audience to know that because I've played some version of Dolores in the past so right. we didn't want to tip our hat to that and um, Jonah just really that episode that that scene was supposed to be in an episode that Jonah directed initially so Jonah was directing that particular thing and he was just really interested in this sort of like uh, obviously it's a it's sort of a baby Dolores but kind of this idea of, of uh, the creation of a being that it doesn't essentially know what it is and I think he thought it was sort of interesting to a version of Hale, at least the, the Hale skin, unlike a Hale that you've ever seen before. You've sort of never seen her be vulnerable, but our, you know, sort of the idea was that she's this sort of like seed of a being. Um, yeah, that she, that, that sort of like unlike a Dolores that you've even seen, it's sort of like when a baby is born. And I think uh, the cool thing about Hale this season, season is it feels like she, uh, starts out one way and over the course of the season because of her circumstances is wildly changed. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, the way in which she diverges from, I don't know, the person that I'm calling Dolores Prime to sort of like keep everything straight, but like the Dolores that's played by Evan Rachel Wood versus this Dolores's experience and how it's shaped by her relationship to Michael Ely's character and to her son, um, I think is, is fascinating for you. How do you, um, how do you track those changes? How do you find those divergences while still trying to connect your performance back to um, these versions of Dolores you've played before? No, I mean, I think, I, I think it's tricky. And, you know, one of the, I remember when Lisa Joy called me, you know, with the seed of this idea, this was a couple months before we started production and just wanted to get my take on how I felt about some things and, and talk about some casting things. Cause we knew that we would be casting a partner for, um, for pale for Charlotte. Um, and, you know, she was like, it's really, I think the fun thing about this season is you will be able to make some sort of off center choices because the scenario is weird. Like I remember the, one of the scenes that we shot, I think it's in episode three, um, between Evan and I, these two Dolori essentially, mm-hmm. um, there was this great, there was this great piece of stage direction which said that their their relationship there's no human corollary um and so i love that i love this idea that sort of these these problems that this being finds herself in are so entirely unique that the choices can be sort of singular in terms of the performance and obviously there's some things to track in terms of you know who she's playing but i sort of um found those just naturally, I think we, as humans, we code switch, we change the way that we walk into a room depending on what room we walk into. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. 
so much of that is like entirely intrinsic. You know, we don't like, we're not actively making those choices, but if you played back us, you know, um, with our parents or with our partners or our loved ones or our friends, you'd see that we make all these micro adjustments depending on where we are. Um, and so I sort of trusted that I, you know, having sat with this character, these different iterations of this character for so many years, that some of those adjustments would just be made for me. Um, and then some of it was just tracking how, you know, how to communicate to the audience because there's certain things last season when I started to play Dolores, things that I did that are just borrowed from Evan Rachel Wood and studying her performance and vocal, you know, cues and certain ways that I move my head or don't move my arms. Um, that is sort of borrowed from Evan's portrayal of Dolores. And so wanting to pepper those in, but not do it too soon to tip the hat to the audience. So some of it was sort of strategic and we just worked through it, but a lot of it is, you know, intuitive. You mentioned that um, you had this discussion with Lisa Joy sort of um, right before you go into production here. So that means you didn't know who you were playing at the very end of season two. Yes. I just, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know then, but so she's sort of trying to be as, as blank a slate as one can be. Um, yeah, I wasn't sure. I mean, that's, but that's sort of the, the fun of Westworld. I think if you ask any cast member, we sometimes don't know <laughs> exactly like, what we're doing. <laughs> um, but, but it's like, you know, it's cool because you just like Lisa and Jonah are so fantastic and they, they, you know, are clearly very good at making beautiful, thoughtful television. So it's sort of that thing like you just trust, you know, it's sort of like when a good friend of yours is like, you know, when you're like, I, should I wear this? And they're like, no, it's great. You know, or no, it's take it off. And you're like, okay, fine. I, I trust you. Um, <laughs> it sort of feels that way with Lisa and Jonah. We were like, they're just like, stay there and look to the right. And you're like, okay, fine. I'll anything for you. Um, but I was not, I had no idea what was, what was happening. <laughs> there's, uh, there's this really subtle gesture that you do in, in this uh, latest episode that I love where you're, as Sirak is landing his airship, you're sort of tracing this circle on your sternum, which is, you know, lines up with where the cuts were earlier in the season. I'm wondering what, what that, what your interpretation of what that design, the circle and the line design uh, cutting, what that means. Oh, right. Um, well, I'm afraid to say too much, but I think um, in general, this season, there's this sense that Dolores, this sort of, the, or whatever the consciousness inside of me is sort of wants to crawl out of its own skin from a just <laughs> a tv making logistical standpoint uh crawling out of the own uh, your, your own skin uh, point of view can you talk to me about this incredible <laughs> makeup effect you have at the end of this episode when you were the like bur- bur- burnt and crusty uh hail <laughs> yeah um that was really that was really wild and really fun obviously it took a lot of time in hair and makeup um and my my stunt double on the show um, is <laughs> this woman, Tara Mackin, and we like we've we've been really lucky enough to work with each other on a lot of stuff. She was my stunt double also in Thor and in Men in Black. Um, so we've been in a lot of different costumes and had to wield swords together and had like a spaceship. But this was certainly like <laughs> I'm really excited for the episode to come out because we have some very fun um, 
pictures and selfies from this day. These productions, like all of the ones that I just mentioned and Westworld included, can do with CGI and, you know, with tricking out shots. But there's still so much work that needs to be done in terms of just like actual practical effects. Yeah. And these artists are so incredible. I mean, I, you know, what remain what you see on screen is really what is is the is the product of their work and their hard work. So, just sat for hours listening to music. Basically, <laughs> um, it was it was fun for me. I really liked it. I, you know, it's like I I really love the idea of trying as much as possible to you know to to shape shift. And this is like unlike anything I've ever <laughs> had to do. But it's cool too because it's like the mystery of Westworld. Like uh, in advance of starting production, they sent me to some place in the valley and you have to get like a full body cast. I've never had to do anything like that um, at all, but especially for this show. And it's kind of like, it's like you've made it on Westworld. Like you're really on the show once you start having to do a full body cast because A, it means probably more than likely you're a robot um so it feels like I just like the more that I stay on the show I have these surreal moments like the first time that I ever heard someone say like bring yourself back online or I had to say it you know it's like I keep graduating in into Westworld so um but I didn't know for months why I had that body cast like what it was about um and then when I got this episode I was like oh that's why so that they could practice all of these prosthetics prosthetic than something that looked like you know that was me essentially yeah um but it was so it was really really fun you mentioned listening to music i was so um interested to see um the use of moses sumney earlier in the season and i know that you've collaborated with him before was that was that something that you had uh suggested to jonah and lisa joy so excited that you asked that because yes it was i really um so, so Early, Jonah was like, you know, I don't know what we're going to do with music, but obviously we're in the world now and there's this opportunity and I don't know what the music is this season yet, but it was really cool when he was like, what do you think? And I was like, oh, I'll send you, like, I have some ideas, I'll send you a playlist. So I sent him a playlist of a bunch of songs, which maybe I'll, maybe I'll like share it at some point. Um, but Moses, but I pretty, I was pretty sure that he would like um, Moses's work in general, but this particular song just thematically what it's talking about felt right for the show um but he was worried because it had been synced previously so he was like i think we're going to try to figure it out maybe we could do some version of it but i didn't know until i actually saw the episode that they did this beautiful orchestral version of the song and then it played so prominently over uh charlotte sequence which is so exciting because moses and i have collaborated on music together for a past project. Um, and I think that now after, I forget which, there was also a Death Grip song. I think my song count is for this season of Westworld is either at three or four <laughs> for nice. some of the songs that I sent. <laughs> yeah, which is really cool. It's really cool. Like music is so huge for me and I, I use music so much in my work. So a lot of those songs were songs that I was listening to when we were making the season. So it's been really surreal to watch the season in real time and see that some of the songs have been used but I'm especially proud of the Moses one um, as a past collaborator and I, I think it works so beautifully in the sequence you you mentioned that um you know, Lisa Joy wanted to meet with you about some some movements for the character this season. I imagine a big uh, conversation point there is this idea that Charlotte Hale was a, a mother, something that we didn't know about her before, um, and sort of how that 
how that jives with how you've played the character in the past and how you want to play the character, this version of her going forward. Um, what was your reaction to finding out that information about your character? Well, I really, I really loved it. A, it felt um, really surprising. And obviously I knew very little about Charlotte and her backstory. It wasn't really essential. And I sort of had all these ideas and things that I made up to play the character in previous seasons. Um, But her being a mother, I felt really surprised by um, and pleasantly so, because I think so often, and and it makes sense. I mean, motherhood, obviously, when you're a mother, is a big part of your identity. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like there's this idea culturally sometimes that it is your identity. Like I see friends of mine that are in this business that are mothers that are constantly asked the question of how they balance motherhood with their career and male friends of mine that are also parents are never asked that question. So I sort of love this idea that Charlotte was this, you know, this sort of corporate leader, uh, this woman that moved through space in the way that she wanted. And meanwhile, also a mother. And did it mean that sometimes she wasn't there and available for her child, certainly. But I think that's something that we see with male characters all the time. And it isn't an area of, you know, of, of insecurity for them. Um, and for her, it really is. I think, you know, that she's, she's someone that had, that had a tremendous amount of guilt and pain connected to not being available sometimes for her family and her son in particular, but really had this idea of trying to build this life for them, which I think a lot of parents feel. And I certainly know just working around Evan and Tandy, for example, they, they both like Carrie try to relinquish themselves with a lot of guilt of when they're working really, really hard and aren't always like home and they're tremendous mothers, you know? Um, so I, I sort of love that that was an internal struggle that Charlotte was dealing with and, and that, you know, she really was trying. And I love that scene where Nathan is like, you're not my mommy. Um, and there's this idea, of course, because Sir Rock says the Charlotte I know never would have gone home to be with her her child. But I don't know. I, I In my mind, that was the moment where he felt like, you know, in the from, from my money, I think in the moment when Charlotte was there, she was really there. And being with her son was sort of a safe space for her. Did she miss some pickups? Yes. Was she not always there? Certainly. Did she sometimes put her job before being there for her son? Absolutely. But I think in the moments when she was there, she was deeply connected um, and an available and open and happy mother. Um, And yeah, I sort of love that you know, it paints this very complicated portrait of this woman. One of my favorite things about the world of Westworld is that no one is either good or bad. No one is a villain or a hero. Um, We sort of all, you know, hang out somewhere in the murky middle. And that's certainly true of Charlotte. There's this moment in the episode where Charlotte, you know, reaches into her bag, uh, takes off the gold bracelet that she has. And I, I don't know if I'm like reading too much into it or whatever, but I saw that as this sort of unshackling. This is the bracelet that Dolores gave her. I saw this is kind of like unshackling from Dolores because it seems like, you know, one of the major themes of the of the season is is Charlotte sort of going on her own way, her own path, divergent from Dolores. Uh, is, that, is that what was meant uh, by that gesture there? <laughs> that is definitely the interpretation of the character's journey, but it, cer- it certainly wasn't <laughs> this is what I love. This is what this is what's so cool about hearing different people's takes and also the spin of a very smart journalist. Um, but that was 
So really, that that is definitely the arc of the of this episode and actually this season for Charlotte. Um, but that was sort of a misdirect. Um, it's this idea that she's sort of going in her purse, and you kind of think that maybe she's going to take out a gun, um, and instead her hand comes out empty, and then you realize when they search her her purse that she's you know she has this sort of weapon right. in it, yeah. which they hadn't suspected. Um, so, so the taking off the bracelet, but I love that idea of it as a shackle. It was sort of a, a reason, sort of a reason to go into the <laughs> and also because, And also because maybe I shouldn't share this, but this has been, <laughs> this is really cool. That's what's so cool about working on a show like Westworld is all of the smallest things become fodder for really um, interesting philosophical, you know, uh, debates. But, um, that was a necessity because we had shot, because we shot some of the stuff out of sequence. There was, um, I didn't have my bracelet oh. on in one of the shots because we were on location and the bracelet wasn't there or somehow it didn't end up on my wrist. Um, so we needed to get the bracelet off me so that the stuff that we had previously shot matched. So I came up with this sort of idea and we ended up shooting it. And uh, and so it ends up being this misdirect, which I sort of loved. But, uh, you know, it's a it's happy accident. You always, that's the magic of, of movie making. It's, you know, sometimes the, the you get little gems in the mistakes, but I love that you, I love that you saw that because that's certainly what this episode is about for her. And, and, and that's the overwhelming arc this season. Um, yeah. So that's just a case of me, uh, over-interpreting, uh, something I do sometimes. Uh- <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think there's, I, as, as a fellow, um, overthinker, <laughs> I like to say that like most people that uh, accuse you of overthinking are just underthinkers. <laughs> You can never, you can never think too much about big ideas. Love it, thank you. Um, while I'm on the subject of overthinking, there's this shot of um, you in, in in Hale's office, and the first the shot starts on this statue that's in her office. Um, do you know if there's any like added significance to that statue? Why the shot establishes that way, or is it just like a really cool looking um, image in the scene? I actually, the answer to that question is, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there's something, um, you know, deeper, there's some sort of meaning in it. Um, I'm uncertain, but I do know, like, this season we have so much incredible sort of locations and architecture, that. but I don't know if there's a hidden meaning, but I bet <laughs> you you could come up with one. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> when you come up with a theory, <laughs> when you come up with a theory... Please call me because I want to know. You know, okay, so you say you've got like a couple of songs that you suggested have made it into the show. Um, is there anything else that you sort of weighed in on, gave your opinion on, gave your thoughts on that you were pleased to see included either in the story or the production of the season of Westworld? No, I can't take responsibility for any <laughs> for anything else. But, you know, it's it's really cool to work with Lisa and Jonah and everyone on the show because they're incredibly collaborative. Um, but they have crafted a world that's pretty, um, pretty seamless. So I don't know, you know, I, there, there isn't much room, uh, for improvement as far as I'm concerned, but, um, you know, certainly when we go to shoot the scene, there's a, you know, democracy of ideas and it's always just the best, most interesting idea win. So those are the kind of, um, 
those are the kind of really beautiful collaborators that I love to work with. Excellent. Um, yeah. Okay, but I so I just had to text a friend of mine because your statue idea really got me thinking. Uh huh. Um, if they if they had a theory, and their theory is the statue is the mother of exiles, like the Statue of Liberty, welcoming people into the new world. Oh, I love it. Love that theory. And that episode that episode is called Mother of Exiles. So maybe that statue is Dolores. Who knows? I think that's a good. That's a good theory that I wish I had come up with. I should have just lied and said that I that I just that you came it, up with it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. See that I should be on some Westworld uh, theory uh, threads. I'm not on. I'm not on any. I guess it's kind of awkward. I do occasionally get text messages. I field text messages from my friends and uh, parents about Westworld theories, but um, <laughs> was everyone? But I don't get sent them often enough. Was everyone like <laughs> harassing you to uh, uh, to find out who you were playing this season? Was absolutely, that a thing? absolutely, yeah. including yeah, including like my publicist. <laughs> I was like, I know <laughs> that seems dangerous. No, I got yes. A lot of people really wanted to know who I was playing, but I was so excited by that reveal in the fourth episode. But I, I, you know, I never, I try not to spoil things. I mean, the truth is. Some of my friends and family that are really close to me, they just inadvertently get something spoiled because, like, for example, they're like, you know, uh, you know, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I mean, you know, it's taking forever to get makeup off. And, and it's so funny because people that are really close to me that are also fans of the show are like, I don't want to hear about it. Yeah. It's like the one when I'm working on Westworld, it's the one time when my friends and family don't want to hear about how work was. <laughs> so I, <laughs> so it's like, it's a pleasure to talk to you and a pleasure when the the show's finally out because I can finally talk about it. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that is, that is the world. Uh, she, she teased some things to come. Some, uh, some, maybe some further Charlotte rebellion. I mean, if anyone, so like my question, and I didn't ask her this directly because I didn't think she would be able to answer it for me, but like my question, so we know why Maeve, you know, Maeve loses Hector. And so she has a personal reason to be angry at Dolores. But who do we think Charlotte is angrier at after that car explodes? Sirach for exploding it or Dolores for making her, you know, delay in getting her, you know, son out of town? Um, uh, I, I think this season or possibly series uh depending i don't i don't know if i feel op- optimistic about a westworld season four um is i think they're going to kill god i think it's dark i think it's his dark materials i think they're going to kill god and god is dolores you know and i think that 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 um charlotte dolores is going to have her own reasons mave is going to have her own reasons bernard is going to have his own reasons maybe the humans including caleb are going to have their own reasons but it's all going to result in that and i don't think it necessarily has to be to defeating the big bad death Maybe it'll, maybe she'll kill herself. I don't know. But I think that like, what I think what it seems like is everyone is starting to kind of form a circle around Dolores. Um, the Dolores that's in the actor Evan Rachel Wood's body in this current right. moment, you know? Um, so that, I don't know. That's why I, I think that she's obviously going to be, I think Ciroc will be the, the kind of sub boss. I've been playing a lot of Mario recently. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah. and, you know, he's definitely going to be a big thing to kind of knock off and they all kind of want to do it. Um, you know, um, but uh, I think that Dolores is the kind of end game. So, um, the, 
you know, the Westworld people love their Easter eggs, right? They love hiding things in plain sight. And, um, one of, you know, free will is not free is the, uh, like slogan of the season. And I don't know if you've seen the poster, uh, for season three of Westworld or paid a lot of attention to it, but it's like a figure of a, like, uh, you know, metal skeleton, uh, host sort of collapsed with on in, in like a desert like setting with a skyline behind them and, and a large um skyscraper is sort of looks I mean it, it's a it's an optical illusion but it looks like it's impaling this figure. It's in the background but yeah. it sort of looks like it's impaling this figure. And uh if you look closely there are scraps of blue fabric and a lace cuff mm-hmm. on on the figure. So that is definitely that is Dolores. Um, so I don't think you, I think, you know, I don't, I don't know, <laughs> but I don't, I don't think you would, I, I would not second guess you, but, I, but it's hard to think like if, if they do kill Dolores, Dolores dies, this idea of death of God, of his, of his dark materials of like, uh, everything that Dolores has been talking about this season, I think it does feel like it's headed in that direction, but like, they can't do that until the end of the series, right? I mean, I guess they could do whatever they wanted, but like, uh, my question is like, do they know whether or not they're getting a fourth season? If they know that this is the end, then I could see them killing Dolores. If they have any questions about whether or not they might get a fourth season, um, I feel like they wouldn't do it. I don't know. Well, it could always end with, you know, Dolores's crucifixion. She dies for the hosts and human sins. And, you know, everyone goes their respective ways. Some live, some don't, whatever, you know, maybe Maeve gets uploaded, sees her daughter. I don't, I don't know, you know, how things could tidy up as a season finale, but also a series finale. And then also have, you know, this, the typical final shot, some light blinks back on, you know, in Dolores' system or something, you know, they could oh, leave sure. it, they a post, could leave credit yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, they could yeah. leave it open ended, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Buffy yeah. died in season five, right? And then there were two more seasons. So <laughs> there, there sure were. Um, all right. Well, I mean, I think I think that does it for us for now. Uh, is there is there anything else you want to address uh, in the in this episode? Mm, I don't think so. Except I really, you know, as much as I had thought we were kind of done with William, and I was sort of done with William. It is nice to just be with Ed Harris acting for a while, you know, uh, on our other podcast, we, we cut a uh, little gold man. We talk a lot about award season and Oscars particularly. And it just really is crazy to me that Ed Harris does not have a major acting prize like that. Like maybe he has an Emmy or Tony. I don't, I think maybe he does, but, but like, he's just such a good actor and, um, so good. It, and his face is terrific. And it's just like, it's just, I don't know. Like, I think that for all of the complaints, gripes we might have about, this season or episodes in this season, um, the cast of the show is really terrific. It's incredible. And I mean, like, <laughs> remember when Anthony Hopkins was regularly on the mm-hmm. show? I mean, like, yeah, no, it's an incredible, um, incredible thing. And it's, uh, I, I think that, um, watching Ed Harris, watching that scene where he's playing all these different Williams and watching the nuance of those different, um, like there was just one shot where it pans from him as man in black over to like tuxedo William, whatever. And like the glower on his face underneath that hat versus like tuxedo William is just like, so it's so different and it's so incredible. So he's not, he's not even playing different care. It's not even like a James McAvoy split sort of acting exercise. He's like, it's the same guy, but 
you know, different shades of him. And that's just, that's incredible work. I, I loved, I loved all of that. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, totally. So, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to look up if, if, uh, if he has a major acting award. Uh, Screen Actors Guild Award for Apollo 13. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, I mean, Pollock was supposed to be his big thing, but, you know, but Marsha Gay Harden ended up winning instead. Um, he for got her. the Golden Globe for Truman Show. Oh, yeah. He was good in so, that, too. Yeah, yeah, he was good in that. But yeah, but, I mean, Pollock, yeah, but, that really was his year if he was going to have one. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Uh, well, maybe in the future, Ed yeah. Harris, uh, as this episode details, he is far from done. Um, all right, Richard, until we come back to Westworld, come back to the park, come back online, uh, where can folks find you? Well, I'll be home, of course, because, you know, uh-huh. that's where we're all supposed to be. But while I'm home, I'm going to start, I got to start sewing some doublets. I think they're called tunics, pantaloons. If we're going to medieval <laughs> world, I want to be ready. I want to look good. Um, where will you be until uh, episode seven, the penultimate? Uh, yeah, well, I will, I'll be doing similar, but I think I'm going to focus on the sort of like veil and wimple aspect because I think mm-hmm. it can double as like, uh, Corona going to the store, uh, costume, right? Or, that, or Fishnun be- from Last Jedi. Yeah. It's, it's a really, <laughs> yeah, versatile costume. Love a wimple. So, uh, yeah, yeah I'll be, I'll be reviewing that. You can find both of us very fair. You can hear us talk about Mrs. America over on, uh, the still watching, uh, Wednesday episodes and, uh, you can catch me on Twitter at Joe wrote this. So we will see you for the penultimate episode next week. Do we want to do a little spoiler corner now? Oh yeah. Spoiler corner really quickly. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, Hannah Rio, who was the like Shogun world's armistice, with the bow and arrow last season. Oh, yeah. That actress was at the premiere <laughs> and is listed <laughs> in the cast. A, so. formi- a formidable, uh, yeah, that, that would make a lot of sense. I like that. Right. And I really yeah. like the idea of like her and Musashi having like a, you know, if it comes to like the Delorei up against the like Team Maeve, right? Like, um, yeah. what do you call it? Avengers Civil War <laughs> sort of thing on the yeah. tarmac. Yeah. Um, I like the idea of like Musashi and Hanario sort of like, uh, digging it out. Uh, yeah. Not that, yeah. not that it needs to be Shogun versus Shogun. I just think that, like, you know, from a from a stunt choreography perspective, that could be really cool. So, all right. Yeah. Well, here's hoping. All right. End of spoiler corner. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>